from LPM. Louisville Public Media. Support for LPM Podcasts comes from the Eye Care Institute and Butchertown Clinical Trials, where they strive for diversity, equity, and inclusion within their staff, patients, and clinical trial participants. To learn more, visit butchertown.clinic. Thank you, Masha Gessen. Thank you also to the University of Louisville, Kentucky Author Forum. Um, I wonder if we could start out um, by some of our audience members maybe don't know so much about your personal biography, your personal story, and what has taken you from Russia to the US, back to Russia. Give us a sense of your journey. So I moved to the United States with my parents in 1981. Legally, we were refugees. Um, I've never really thought of myself as a refugee. Um, I thought that we had this incredible privilege of being able to leave the Soviet Union when the rest of the 250 million people were stuck there. Um, and we were on our way to, to the US over the course of a few months uh, that did involve uh, something like refugee camps. But, uh, but then um, we settled in Boston. I became a journalist in the United States. I worked in the gay press, uh, and then I went freelance, started working for magazines, got an assignment to go back to Moscow to, on a story, landed in Moscow, and was completely blown away by what happened to me in Moscow, which is that I felt I had expected it to be a foreign country um, where I happened to speak the language, and I felt at home. Uh, and I felt incredibly comfortable. It was like something about the way you know, the light fell uh, or, or the shape of space, and I fit. And so I thought, you know, I never had a choice about leaving this country. I'm gonna stay. Uh, and I thought I'd stay for a few years, and then it was like uh, 20 plus years later, and, um, and I had three kids and a partner, and everybody was Russian, and, and I, I had friends. Um, and I had become a Russian language journalist in addition to an English language journalist. I kept publishing in both places and I was editing magazines in Moscow. And then Putin's anti-gay campaign started. And at a certain point we had to get out in a hurry because of that. They basically threatened to take away um, our oldest son who was adopted. Because you were gay? Because we're gay, yeah. And how long ago was that? That was in 2013. So the anti-gay campaign began in 2012. The anti-gay legislation was passed in, 20, in June of 2013. Um, the law that would have allowed them to take away my son was passed on June 18th. And June 23rd, he flew to the US to stay with his grandfather for a couple of months um, and then to start school. And then in December, we moved to New York City. Your work obviously has been very provocative, uh, at least in Russia, and critical, unflinching. Do you think that that played a hand as well in this targeting of you and your family situation? Um, actually, weirdly, I think it wasn't so much my journalism work, although that probably had something to do with it. Um, more likely it was my involvement in the protests in 2011, 2012. Um, so there were, um, there were a number of people who were involved in organizing those protests. The protests started spontaneously. No one expected them to. And then different people just started doing different things. And what I did is I started a, what we called a protest workshop, which was almost like a clearinghouse for protest actions that was modeled on this self-organization model of ACT UP. Uh, and I ran that for six months. And then after the crackdown began, uh, in May of 2012, 
people who had been instrumental in getting the protests organized all came under pressure. Uh, some of them were arrested, uh, and others were threatened with arrest so that they would leave the country. And I was threatened with this. So, I th yeah, I think it fits into that pattern. Mm -hmm. But, it, you know, it so happens that the anti-gay campaign was raging, and so it fits into that as well. So the book is, on some levels, an exploration of this idea of totalitarianism. Right. And I just wonder if you could try to synthesize for our audience with some brevity what you mean. <laughs> I, I noticed the, the signal words, synthesize, brevity. Right? Uh, what you mean by, because it is such a big term, right. what do you mean by it exactly? Or how do you see it? Right. So um, there's, uh, what Clarissa is referring to is, is there's a very long chapter in the book that is dedicated entirely to the concept of totalitarianism because I knew I was going to get uh, to come under criticism for using such a big term to describe Russia, but I also felt it was essential to describe not what is happening to the Russian regime, but what's happening to the Russian society, right? So totalitarianism is a particular kind of regime. It, uh, it is different, it's a 20th century phenomenon. It's different from tyranny. It's also different from authoritarianism. And it's different from tyranny in the sense that it really aims to dominate the whole person. So not just to elicit particular behaviors from a person, but to really eliminate private space, eliminate any sense of agency, and to, to take total control of every human being in the country. It's different from authoritarianism in that in, under authoritarianism, the authoritarian ruler wants people to stay home, tend to their private lives, and leave their authoritarian leader alone to do their, uh, the running of the country, the plundering of the country, the redistributing of wealth to his cronies, whatever. Right? Uh, and it's, nothing is political in an authoritarian regime. And I think that the Putin regime was an authoritarian regime up until 2012. A totalitarian regime, in a sense, is the opposite. Everything becomes political. And the totalitarian leader wants people to leave their private lives, in fact, to eliminate their private lives, and to be out in the public square demonstrating in support of the regime. So it's totally mobilized. And uh, you know, the definitions of totalitarian regimes that we have were based on, the, on Nazi Germany but to, uh, and uh, on the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. The Soviet Union was the longest running experiment in totalitarianism. It lasted for 70 years. And over the course of years, totalitarianism itself changed. And so my, uh, my argument is that you can't call the Putin regime a totalitarian regime. His regime is a mafia state. But it's a mafia state that he built on the ruins of a totalitarian regime. And so once the crackdown began in 2012, what it called forward was, were the habits and the cultural institutions and the informal institutions of a totalitarian society. So the lived experience of, an, uh, of being in Russia now is the experience of living in a totalitarian society, even though there's not a totalitarian regime that aims to institute state terror. So I think this is so, such an interesting or difficult concept, particularly for an American audience to get its head around, because from this side of the globe, the 90s was kind of pitched as this incredible moment of euphoria and opportunity. Why do you think it is that democracy did not take hold, did not stick in Russia? 
So, you know, I, uh, I mean, I am not just as guilty of, of thinking about this the way that you just described as the next person, I'm probably twice as guilty because I think that the people who really thought that Russia was going to become a democracy uh, and embrace freedom after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the two groups that were most committed to that idea were Moscow intellectuals and Western journalists. And so, <laughs> so because I'm both, I, 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 like, I feel like I have a double burden uh, of, of that silliness. Um, and, you know, why, um, there's, there's sort of two models that I continuously apply in the book. One is the sociological model of looking at Homo Sovieticus, which is the sort of the, the, the kind of human being, the set of behaviors that the Soviet Union produced. And the other is the psychological model of looking at trauma. And I think that just when we think about 1991 and what happened after, it's really useful to think of a society as a person. When a person has been abused for many, many years, or even decades, or even through generations, and that person is removed from that situation of abuse, if we don't tell that person, go and lead a happy, healthy life. Go, you know, be psychologically sound. We know that's impossible. We know there's trauma, and we know that person needs care and attention and treatment, and even then, it's likely that they will reproduce the situation of abuse. Well, societies in that sense are probably like people. Societies will reassemble around an authoritarian or a totalitarian leader. They will willingly cede their agency because it is absolutely terrifying to try to reinvent yourselves. Mm. So in a sense, you're saying that Russia never really dealt with its own trauma. Right. Um, now that's where it gets a little complicated. Uh, I think that there, there are two things that didn't happen in the, in the 90s. One, um, and I have just remembered that I have been asked to speak more slowly. Uh, <laughs> one <laughs> is that um, Russia didn't uh, look for a new identity, post-imperial identity. Right? Russia remained an empire, a rump empire, but it could have thought of itself uh, as something else, an identity that wasn't based on greatness. But it didn't. And so what it, what, it, what, it, what it turned into was a sense of greatness diminished, which is a huge source of resentment. Mm. And it's a source of resentment that Putin has used very effectively in consolidating power. But the other thing, and I think that's a failure on the part of Yeltsin and his people, uh, because I think that could have been tried at least. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that didn't happen was there was no reckoning with the past. Um, Yeltsin, uh, quite intentionally sort of scuttled the, the, the trial of the Communist Party, uh, which, which, which was supposed to get underway, and any effort to really sort of open the archives and have an open discussion, have some sort of truth and reconciliation commission. Yeltsin, in 1996, he declared um, reconciliation day without the truth part. Just, you know, just let's, let's fast forward to reconciliation. But I think he had a point because other countries that have had processes of reckoning with the past have had a much shorter time to address, and they have had the option, first of all, of othering the terror, of saying, you know, someone else did this to us, right? This is what other post-Soviet countries did. They said it was Moscow, or it was the Soviet occupation uh, in, in like a Baltic state. But even in Georgia, people will say, you know, it was Moscow that did it to us. Um, 
But, and, and, and the other benefit that they had was that they were able to separate people into victims and perpetrators. But in Russia, mm. everyone was a victim and a perpetrator. No one was a bystander. Because That's the, the people point of were the totalitarian complicit. machine. Yeah. The point of the totalitarian machine is to make everyone complicit, to make, turn everyone into an enforcer. And so uh, one of the, you know, the central sort of historical uh, story in the book is the story of a woman who, who happens to be the grandmother of the psychoanalyst character in the book. Um, and these are, I call them characters, but they're all real people. Uh, so this is a woman who be, uh, gave up her husband, made herself a widow, and lived with the grief for the rest of her life, racked by grief. You know? uh, and this, this is a perfect example of somebody who became a victim by becoming a perpetrator. Hmm. And so imagine the process of reckoning. I can't, right? I can't imagine a country that says, we did this to ourselves. Every family has victims, perpetrators, and often they're the same person. We don't know who can beg forgiveness of whom. We're all culpable, or all of our parents are culpable, and all of our parents are victims. Um, that may not be possible. Hmm. You, you talk a lot, and you just touched on this, about the idea of the sort of the Soviet prototype um, and, and the sort of exploration that you do of the Soviet system, which is, is predicated on this Orwellian idea of double, double think, mm-hmm. um, which is encapsulated very nicely in this old Russian adage of we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. Um, what new Faustian bargain do you think has been struck between the Russian state and the people? If during Soviet times it was we pretend to work, you pretend to pay us, what do you think the deal or the quid pro quo is now that has allowed the Russian people to once again buy into this double think? That's a great question. I mean. Um, you know, uh, I describe the, the, the theories of Yuri Levada, the great Soviet sociologist in the book, and um, he had this idea that you know, the, the explicit project of the Bolshevik Revolution was to create a new man. Um, and it, a new man was created. It was a man, and I don't mean, you know, I don't mean this is like a race, right? I mean this is a set of behaviors. It's a culture of being. Um, that, that the sociologists call homo sovieticus. And that is the kind of person, the, the set of behaviors that is best suited for surviving under conditions of state terror. And so Levada identified seven different negotiations that the homo sovieticus is always engaged in with the state, and they're always internally contradictory. It's always thinking the, uh, two, thing, two completely contradictory things at the same time. Uh, the, the classic one is related to the, we, pre, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us, which is that I belong to a great state. I fully identify with this terrific country that, spent the, that sent the man to the moon and um, uh, sent the man into space, uh, not to the moon, uh, man into space and won the Second World War. And I am perpetually jilted and cheated by the state. I am never given my due. I am always worse off than I ought to be. And those two things are in apparent contradiction, but they run on parallel tracks, and they never cross, and that is double think. And I think that's the double think 
that has been recreated and that is in fact a, a bargain, right? It's, it's a negotiation. Okay, you feel cheated, you feel a victim of corruption and that is very resonant with, with virtually all Russians. You know, the idea that corruption is really the greatest ill that, uh, that, that, that plagues them. And at the same time, you take extreme pride in the greatness of your country once again, right? Crimea is ours has been the slogan of the last three years. Um, no Russian has actually benefited from the occupation of Crimea. Most Russians have been severely economically hurt by the occupation of Crimea, the sanctions that followed, the counter sanctions, just the cost of occupying Crimea. But, um, and still, Russians rejoice in the sense of greatness that the occupation of Crimea brings them. Hmm. And I mean, so going back to the 90s, chaotic times, Yeltsin perhaps not seizing the moment um, for a number of different reasons um, to try to deal more with the trauma that Russia had been through. Onto this picture emerges Vladimir Putin. And I just wanted to you know, make a nod to a couple of the, the descriptions in your book, which I loved, one of them. It was precisely Putin's lack of distinction that in fact made him the perfect embodiment of Soviet leadership style. And you talk about this idea uh, of the gray people mm -hmm. and how he fits into that context. Again, you know, here for a US audience where politics is not about being indistinct and gray. <laughs> right. How Never did, has that been more true. And, exactly. <laughs> how did Vladimir Putin capture the Russian imagination? Or maybe it wasn't the imagination that he captured, it was something else. I think he rode the Russian imagination. But, you know, uh, the, so, uh, the, uh, Max Weber had uh, a theory of charismatic leadership and a classification of, 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 of charisma. So there's personal charisma uh, that US presidents often possess, usually possess, and uh, the current US president possesses it in, in, in spades. And, um, and then there's secondary charisma, which is charisma derived from the office. And it's an amazing phenomenon, but it really works in Russia, where once Putin was placed in this chair, he had charisma. And it's a very difficult thing to, to understand from the outside. Uh, now, once he was placed in that chair, once Yeltsin uh, sort of anointed him his successor, Putin immediately moved to assert sovereignty. Uh, and um, the, one of the first things he did, and, and what catapulted him to sort of the heights of power, was to start a second war in Chechnya and to speak about the second war in Chechnya in really awful, disgusting terms, promising you know, extrajudicial uh, extra executions, promising to wipe people out in the outhouse, and suddenly from being a gray, completely unknown person, this little functionary, he went to the most popular politician in Russia. Because he was macho or because he was, what distinguished him from Yeltsin other than that he was not drunk? Well, that actually mattered a lot. Uh, he seemed competent uh, and not drunk, and so he was not an embarrassment. I mean, there's like this, there's this pool of resentment uh, that is just, is just overflowing, right? And there's the resentment that has to do with the shame of having a leader like, like Yeltsin. 
right? which over, has been overlaid onto all sorts of shame that appeared in the 1990s. One of the things, and, and Lev Gutkov, the sociologist, talks about this quite a bit in the book, uh, one of the things that happened in the 90s was, was that Russians traveled abroad. And it was a huge blow to people's egos in a way that they, you know, no one could have predicted. And I didn't think about it until Gutkov talked to me about it. He said, you know, people went abroad and they realized how poor they were. They realized that even the not very well-off people in poor European countries, you know, like in a country like Spain, lived better daily lives, much more comfortable daily lives than, than Soviets who thought that they were pretty well-off. Uh, and that was so insulting because the uh, Soviet citizens thought of themselves as living in a technologically advanced country. They, they prayed to the gods of progress. And there they were. It was, you know, it was, it was tangible, all the things that they had, they had been denied. Mm. And so that was a source of shame. And then Yeltsin sort of as, as a representative of that poor, backward Russia was also a source of shame. And along comes Putin. Who, is like, who has no presence, but wears European cut suits and, and can talk and doesn't get drunk. Uh, and at least that takes the edge of, off of that shame. Right? Um, and then also he just trafficked really effectively in the nostalgia that had taken root. Right? He called to it uh, and, and he talked about all the feelings of resentment, the feelings of resentment that, uh, that, that, that Russia had become smaller by losing all of its Soviet colonies. The feeling of resentment that Russia hadn't even been able to put down uh, the, the uprising in the, this tiny region of Chechnya, and he was going to wipe them out in the outhouse. Uh, and the feeling of resentment that Russia could no longer feel you know, itself to be a great power in the world. I mean, you talk a lot about that, that nostalgia, and certainly, you know, having lived in Russia, nostalgia is such a huge yeah. part. Uh, of the culture, and particularly jarring when it's nostalgia for something that one would assume would be regarded with horror. For example, you talk about this competition that the Russians held to decide on the greatest person of all time, and Stalin was the elected choice, and of course they then had to recount the votes. <clears throat> and well, they no longer do that. They, that. Now, you know, they're quite open about the fact that Stalin is the greatest person of all time. <laughs> Help us understand that. Um, well, actually, I think it's much easier for Americans to understand now than it would have been a year and a half ago. <laughs> uh, because, uh, because you know, we've now become accustomed to the spectacle of somebody who interprets power as the exercise of raw power. Right? And who exercised raw power more effectively uh, and more obviously than Stalin? That's a kind of greatness. It's not, you know, it's not the kind of greatness then that we might think of. Uh, it's not a contribution to the world, it's not, it's not the creation of something, it's the opposite of it, but it's a lot of power concentrated in one man over the course of many years. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure Donald Trump would have, would have adored Stalin if Stalin were alive today. <laughs> you talk about Putin as getting credit for restoring stability. Um, in what ways did he actually restore stability? <laughs> Um, well, did he didn't. restore stability, or is it an illusion? I guess that's my question. Um, 
it's an illusion, and at this point it's worse than an illusion, it's a lie, right? And there's actually a difference. Uh, so, first of all, Putin was extremely lucky. Uh, Russia had had a very difficult time in the 1990s, in part because it was, it was the ruins of a, of, 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 of a totalitarian country. Uh, it was, uh, I, 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 I quote, I think, Balint Magyar, the, um, the Hungarian political scientist who's absolutely brilliant and also a great writer, who writes about privatization. And he says, creating private property out of a Soviet state is like trying to make fish out of fish soup. Uh, and everything that they tried to do was kind of impossible. Right. Um, and so, um, and economically, it was, it was impossible, but it was also economically impossible because oil prices in 1998 were at an all-time low. Right. Uh, the extraction of a barrel of Russian oil in 1998 was $12 a barrel. Uh, and, uh, and the price of oil at, the, uh, at, at, a certain, at the lowest point in 1998 was $8 a barrel. Right? Um, so Russia couldn't even sell oil. And the Russian economy crashed in 1998, and then it started to pick up again in 1999. And when Putin came in in 2000, the oil boom began. And Russia had enjoyed eight years of absolutely unprecedented prosperity, all of it driven by oil profits. Um, and everybody lived better. I mean, even, even as social, uh, economic inequality increased, Still, everybody's life got at least a little bit better. And that's, it's a very difficult thing to try to think about politics negatively when your daily life uh, gets better. Uh, even my brain had a, has a very difficult time with it. Right? But um, So Putin p could point to that and say that he was bringing stability to, to the nation. Um, and then... People, the reason that I say that it's, uh, that, that was sort of the illusion part. The reason that I say that it's gone from being an illusion to being a lie is that as the, the, the incredible economic prosperity began to slow down, corruption increased. And corruption is driven by uh, the corrupt application of totally random laws. Laws are passed in such a way that everyone is outside the law at all times, which is a very Soviet approach. Right? In the Soviet Union, everything was banned, so everybody was an outlaw. And then you could just be arrested for anything at any time. And of course, you were always terrorized because you could never predict whether you were going to get arrested because you, because you were always outside the law. So now Russia is basically in the same situation, especially for anybody who is in any kind of uh, business, any kind of enterprise. They're always outside the law. You know, a restaurateur is outside the law if they're paying cash at a, at a farmer's market mm. for produce because they are not allowed. It's illegal to pay cash for, uh, for, uh, for produce. You have to pay um, you know, through bank transfer, etc. So um, that places most of the country in a situation of extreme instability, but under the slogan of having restored stability. So is Putin a sort of tactical genius, do you think? Or is he just a shrewd opportunist? Or given the sort of, the scope of what he's been able to achieve with the hand that he's been dealt, sometimes I watch his foreign policy and it strikes me that he's at the sort of high stakes poker table winning every hand with a pair of twos somehow. And 
I just, I wonder how you, how you think he's been able to achieve what he's been able to achieve. Is it just because he understands and is therefore able to exploit the system? It's really interesting what you say about him and foreign policy because that, that's not what I would say. I'd say that uh, you know, Russian foreign policy was kind of a failure up until a couple of years ago. Yeah. And then uh, the policy didn't change. Our perception of Putin changed. And maybe that doesn't really have anything to do with Putin. Hmm. And maybe it has everything to do with us. Uh, and right now, I'm, pa I'm obviously not positioning myself as a Moscow intellectual, but uh, uh, I think that Putin has a real talent for holding on to power. Uh, and I think he really is best described as a mafia boss. He has a talent for sort of consolidating power. He has a talent for surrounding himself with a clan that will be faithful to him, and would, uh, he has a talent for manipulating the members of that clan to prevent any kind of solidarity occurring between them. I don't think he, that he has any ability to plan, and we have observed this time and time again. You know, he, he does something like gets into Crimea without thinking through to the, ne to the next step, simply because the opportunity presents itself. Uh, or, you know, my favorite example is actually the Sochi Olympics when the, sort of the, 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 the human rights establishment in the entire world was thinking through what they were going to do, how they were going to draw attention to human rights abuses that were certain to increase after the Olympics because every country in the world, and mostly countries in the world that get Olymp Olympic Games are guilty of horrible human rights abuses. So usually they clean up their act before the games and then they crack back down as soon as the games are over. So human rights activists were planning for this eventuality, and then at a certain point they realized that Russia was not cleaning up its act. And then, in December 2013, after it became clear that a lot of world leaders were going to come to the Olympics, and after President Obama you know, appointed this wonderful delegation that was just a total insult to Putin, including the fact that it had two openly gay Olympic athletes uh, as members of it, um, then Putin realized that he had to do something, and so he released the, the women of Pussy Riot and Mikhail Khodorkovsky uh, and the 30 Greenpeace activists that they had uh, kidnapped in international waters. That was six weeks before the games, and I think that that gives us an accurate measure of his strategic horizon. Hmm. It's six weeks. So the fact that a man who is basically uneducated, underinformed, lives in a bubble, doesn't use the internet, and has a planning horizon of six weeks, is now perceived by us as the most powerful man in the world. It's really troublesome. You know, it's so interesting because I had this conversation with uh, a Russian friend of mine before the election in the U.S. when President Obama was still president. And he, he, he described it like this. He said, you know, Vladimir Putin is looking at President Obama and, he, and, and it's like the system, the way the American system works, it's like being on a train. And Putin has the schedule, and he knows the tracks. They yep. go this way, they go that way. That's the only way they go, and he knows what time they're going to stop at every station. And he doesn't have to play by those rules. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have the tracks. He can move around. He can be a little bit more creative. Well, we had a surprise in store for him, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, he's, I think he really doesn't. He, at this point, he would have preferred Hillary Clinton to have been elected. Why do you say that? She's, she would have been consistent. She would have been tough but predictable. And Putin could have continued with his madman act. Mm. Uh, and now, you know, the madman act has been hijacked. Uh, <laughs>
another Russian friend said to my said to me, and this he's from a sort of a, a different kind of background, part of the sort of oligarchy, if you will. And he said that they, you know, they really had just wanted President Trump to win the election because they believed that that would allow President Putin to stop being distracted by this conflict with the U.S., to focus on reform at home, to focus on diversifying the economy. Um, whether or not that's true, I just found it so interesting that it even struck someone as a, as a possibility. Do you believe um, that there was ever any intention on President Putin's behalf to, to try to focus more on the problems that he faces at home? I don't think so. I think that he is bored with the presidency, profoundly bored, and has been for a long time. He's never actually had a particular interest in the business of governing. And again, you know, I hate to point out the obvious perils, uh, but uh, <clears throat> but he you know he thinks that government is tedious and probably unnecessary, that the only thing that's necessary is to have control, and to have mobilization these days, <clears throat> and so I really cannot imagine him uh, ever wanting to turn to internal uh, problems. I mean he's been in power for 18 years. It's mind-boggling. He's, uh, he's surpassed uh, Brezhnev. He's second now only to Stalin. So he had some time to focus on internal problems. But when he was focused on what was on, on Russian internal politics, he focused on reversing judicial reform, uh, dis, uh, dismantling the electoral system, and taking over the media. And he accomplished all of those things in his first three years in office. So what does he want in the long run? What's his... MO here? Well, at this point, he just wants to hold on to power because he has no choice. Peaceful retirement is not in store for him. Uh, I mean, I think he always wanted to hold on to power indefinitely. But at this point, he really has no choice. He understands that, that he will be prosecuted if he ever wants to retire. And he's in a classic sort of dictator's dilemma. He is, he's informationally isolated. He can't trust anybody. Even if he appoints somebody to sort of hold his place, uh, he will not be able to trust that person. So he just wants to stay in power. So let's talk about, I mean, you, you've brought up now several times allusions to, uh, uh, or direct references to our president now, okay. President Donald Trump. Do you see parallels between the two men? Um, I do, but after we talk about them, can we actually talk about the book? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, I do. I mean, I think that, first of all, I see a lot of differences, right? And the differences are very important. They are, uh, as we already discussed, they're, you know, they're emotionally really different. Uh, one is raw emotion, and, and Putin actually prides himself on controlling his emotions and never betraying an emotion. It's also not true, but that's his self-image. Um, but, and, you know, they, they, they come from vastly different sort of cultural backgrounds and political leg legacies, and they deal with very different societies. Um, but it's been useful for me to, uh, my experience of covering Putin has been useful in observing Trump because there are certain things that, that I, I can see sort of with my special Putin glasses and then I can point them out to you. Uh, and of course, one of them is just the way that they lie, right? Because they both lie all the time, uh, but not in ways that most people lie. Most people lie in order to convince you of something that's not true. Um, 
these guys lie about things that are obvious, right? Like um, Putin uh, lied about Russian troops in Ukraine. For a year and a half, he would say there are no Russian troops in Ukraine. And, you know, there are photographs of Russian troops in Ukraine. There were social media posts of Russian, uh, made by Russian troops in Ukraine. There were bodies of Russian troops that came back from Ukraine, and he kept saying there were no Russian troops in Ukraine, and then he said, of course there are Russian troops in Ukraine. And that was a really interesting moment because he was, this was not a moment of admitting that he had lied. It was a moment of asserting, look, I have the right to say whatever I want whenever I want to. I'm king of reality. You have to engage with what I say, no matter how absurd it is. How does that fit in with this idea of bending the truth and the totalitarian state? Do they, how, does that, how does that play into that? Does, because again, the public becomes complicit on a certain level. Because I'm sure most Russians also understood that there were Russian troops in Ukraine right. and that it just wasn't ever to be talked about in a sense. Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question because I think most Russians knew that there were Russian troops in Ukraine, but they also believed firmly that there were American troops in Ukraine. Uh, I mean, most Russians you will talk to do believe that, that Russia is fighting a war against America in Ukraine, trying to prevent the advancement of American troops who are, get this, going to bring gay culture to Ukraine, and that's why we have to protect ourselves. Uh, so, can, can you help us understand that, actually, just via... I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know, I'm not sure. <laughs> like... No, but you talk a lot about this in, right. in the book. Right. The, the idea that this ratcheting up of homophobia and implementing homophobic propaganda to somehow, to somehow what? What is the political objective here of, of exploiting homophobia? Um, well, so homophobia is, I mean, queer baiting, really, is what we're talking about. Uh, because I don't even think it's exploiting homophobia. It's not like Russians were so terribly homophobic before, uh, and Putin just tapped into this dormant aggression. It's, it's a different mechanism. It's appointing a scapegoat minority. Right? And LGBT people make the perfect minority. And this, I think, is actually really relevant to this country as well, right? Because we're seeing this happen. Um, so when Putin started queerbaiting the protesters in 2011, 2012, uh, he immediately communicated that the protesters were other, they were foreign, they had to come from America, because he was saying, look, you know, there were no gay and lesbian people in Russia before the Soviet Union collapsed. No, actually, there weren't any gay and lesbian people in Russia before the Soviet Union collapsed. There were people who loved people of the same sex and had sex with them and formed families with them or, or relationships and all sorts of actually inventive family stuff was happening. But there was nobody who said, I am a gay or lesbian or transgender person as part of a community that has a collective identity and that can claim human rights on the basis of belonging to that community, right? That's an actual clear-cut Western import. And so this serves as a, sh a shortcut for saying, I can take you back to an imaginary past in which you weren't confronted with things that made you uncomfortable. I can reverse social change that makes you feel so frightened all the time. Right? And that's exactly what Trump does when, he's, when he talks about making America great again. And when he starts reversing the advances in LGBT rights in this country, you know, months after wrapping himself in a rainbow flag. 
Because that's the logic of trafficking in that kind of nostalgia, and this, you know, the nostalgia for the imaginary past. Um, so that's, you know, that's been very useful for Putin. Uh, and it's also been useful to sort of delegate violence, to declare a group of people outside the law, to communicate that you can kill them with impunity, which is what people have been doing. Uh, the most extreme expression of that is in Chechnya, which is a part of Russia, where gay men have, uh, and lesbians have been rounded up and killed by the police and by their families. It, it, it's horrifying, and it's 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 funny when you you mention the idea that they, you know, the sort of pro-Russian separatist movement in Ukraine, uh, thinking of American troops. And I remember going to Ukraine and going to these places and interviewing. Um, characters like this about, you know, what they, how they understood this conflict, and they really kept repeating this line that they saw it as the European Union trying mm -hmm. to enforce bestiality on their society, which sort of beggar belief. You were like, what are you talking about? Like, but this was the information that had been fed to them, that somehow the West, with all its sexual permissiveness and perversions was somehow seeking to infect their social, social sphere. Mm -hmm. And I guess that brings me on to someone who you talk about in the book, and we don't need to get into him per se, but Alexander Oh, but Bogan. I really want to hear about your interview uh, with him. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But, um, <laughs> no, but this idea that, so Putin had come, he had exploited this moment, he had created at least the illusion of stability, but now he was somehow in need of an ideology. Right. And so it was a resurgent superpower in search of an ideology. Mm -hmm. And my question to you is, do you think that the Russian state has successfully articulated an actual ideology, or do you still see it as being reactionary to whatever, you know, to being whatever the Russian, the Western ideology is not. Yeah. You know, I don't actually think that there's a contradiction there. Mm. Because I, I think we get really confused about ideology. Uh, when we talk about ideology, we usually talk about things that we have read in history books. And history books uh, are written on the basis of text. Text privileges ideology. Text makes it sound, makes it seem like ideology is central and like ideology is coherent. Because in retrospect, we're always making sense of things that happen. If you read contemporary accounts, ideology becomes much less coherent and less central, right? Um, Eric Fromm, whom, whom I quote in the book, uh, who was a great social psychologist and psychoanalyst, writing about Nazi Germany in the 1930s, and then he moved to America and uh, he uh, invented, among other things, his contribution is the concept of malignant narcissism. So Eric Fromm is uh, currently enjoying uh, a resurgence in the, uh, in, the, in the mental health community, but, um, uh, but I actually think that uh, I'd recommend his book, Escape from Freedom, which is a book about, um, uh, about the rise of Nazism and his explana uh, the explanation that he sees for that in social psychology. But he, he writes that Hitler had no ideology, that he just picked up uh, on sort of, you know, he trafficked in the imaginary past, um, but, but he had no, no story that he was telling. Uh, Victor Klemper, who wrote this wonderful diary of, of, of Nazi Germany, 
described Hitler as picking up things opportunistically and using them as long as he felt like, like they had traction and then dropping them. And Hannah Arendt, writing about Hitler in 1953, wrote that one of the reasons that the rest of the world had such a difficult time understanding how dangerous he was, was because his ideology sound so, sounded so preposterous, right? So this idea that there was a, a coherent worldview and it was comprehensive and that contained the danger, that idea is actually a little misguided. And Putin, you know, once you start thinking of it that way, you realize that's exactly what he is doing, right? So Dugan, uh, who, who's the character you mentioned from the book, um, he always wanted to be the ideologue, the Kremlin ideologue. So he was like sitting there waiting for someone to finally reach for what he had produced. And what he had produced were some catchphrases and some words that Putin could use to great effect. The idea of the traditional value of civilization, this great sort of encapsulation that Dugan proposed, which is uh, there is no such thing as universal, uh, uh, there's nothing universal about universal human rights. You in the West can have your human rights culture. We will have our traditional value civilization and Russia will be the center of it. And that's pretty much enough. But we are, 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 we, are we seeing these germs of ideas or these seeds of ideas now spreading beyond Russia? Because it does strike me that some of the things coming out of Alexander Dugan's mouth, I'm now hearing taunted back on Twitter at right. various people here in the United States. Well, um, you know, one thing that I couldn't have predicted when I was writing the book, I just, uh, uh, because Alexander Dugan you know, is this insane, uh, but really kind of interesting uh, philosopher. And uh, you know, I love the stories that, uh, that that are in the book about him from the early '80s when he was um, when he was basically a kid. He was like 22 years old, and he's a self-taught philosopher, and he can't find any literature. And so finally, he gets hold of a book by Heidegger on microfilm, but he doesn't get a, have a microfilm machine, and so he he rigs up a children's uh, cartoon projector to project the microfilm onto his desk, right? So it, it's probably black on black and probably backwards. And so he reads his uh, uh, being in time uh, literally on his desktop in the dark. And uh, uh, he, he, his eyesight got a lot worse while he was reading being in time. But imagine <clears throat> reading Heidegger in that kind of isolation. I think it kind of explains a lot. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> But Dugan, um, Dugan is a rabbit hole into which you can go endlessly, and so I stopped myself from, uh, from talking a lot about his influences, but I do mention that he's influenced by Julius Ebola and, and Ganon, uh, Gan uh, I can't pronounce it, but um, these are exactly the intellectual influences that Steve Bannon cites. I mean, there's a reason they speak the same language, this idea of tradition with a capital T, um, and, um, and, and a lot of their, their other ideas uh, go back to these two thinkers, whom both of them have read and who both believe are sort of the foundational uh, thinkers of, of, of their politics. What do they hold, and I'm referring not just to Dugan, but to Bannon and, and Guinan and all the others, what do they hold as sacred? Tradition with a capital T. Uh, but it's, it's this kind of... Um, 
idea of the primordial sort of human being that we can revert to. I mean, it's this imaginary past taken to the nth power. Um, and, you know, it definitely has, uh, has echoes in Hitler's ideology of, of sort of the, you know, this basic idea of, 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 of um, the war of the races as being the natural state of man. Um, this, this idea that there is such a thing as a natural state in which people are at war, the idea of the forever war, all of that is in there. And where does it lead to is my next question because we, we've seen that this is spreading uh, whether through the internet, whether, you know, the world is shrinking. Does it have a logical conclusion? Are you, are you, are you concerned about it or do you think it's a natural ebb and flow of ideas and... <clears throat> oh, I don't think there's anything natural about it, but uh, I mean, I do think that this happens. Uh, and again, I don't, you know, I think that when you say, where does it, where, where does it lead to? It still has the subtext of, you know, how does, what is this coherent story? I don't think we're living in a coherent mm -hmm. story, right? Uh, I think that, um, that humanity has actually stumbled into some of its darkest moments. And we're definitely at risk of stumbling into one of those again. Um, if we don't, we won't know how close we came. Uh, if we do, you know, we'll know. The, the title of your book mm -hmm. is Arresting, I think. The future is history. Uh, and I was thinking about it a lot on the flight and it, it works on so many levels. What, what does it mean to you? Well, it, I was trying to, <laughs> for, for many levels. Uh, the book didn't, didn't have a title uh, until I was about halfway through actually writing it. Um, but, you know, the book, the idea for the book actually uh, came when I was listening to, it's a very odd place to get an idea for a book, but I was listening to a lecture that a friend of mine had recorded and she is a, uh, a professor of clinical psychology in, at John Jay College in New York City. And she had recorded a lecture on trauma psychology for prosecutors. And it's important that it was for prosecutors because it was, not, it was for non-psychologists. So she was explaining in a 45-minute lecture trauma psychology for people who really don't understand it. But she was trying to explain to prosecutors why the witnesses that they work with uh, who are victims of human trafficking are so difficult to work with. Hmm. And so she was explaining to them, you know, why these women are so fragmented. And so she started talking about trauma psychology and mechanisms of control, and I was listening, and I thought, oh my God, she's describing a totalitarian society. And so I started reading up on trauma psychology, and I realized that, in fact, its roots go back to the study of people who had been through internment camps and, uh, you know, brainwashing. And, in fact, it is about totalitarian society. And so, so, I, so the, the idea uh, that drove me toward writing this book and this uh, weird sort of uh, st structure of, of, of centering it on four younger people and three intellectuals um, was to try to trace how trauma works without really saying the word trauma, but to show how people are shaped by uh, but what their parents and grandparents and they themselves lived through. Um, so that's one meaning of the future's history. The other is that when I was about halfway through 
interviewing, and I was interviewing people uh, about their lives uh, in chronological order. And so at around the same time, I was in roughly the same year with all of my interlocutors. And so somewhere in the late 90s, uh, this they started spontaneously saying the same phrase, which is Budushivanyat, which in Russian means there's no future. Uh, and it means, you know, I, I can't imagine the future for this country or for myself uh, or, or for, for people of my profession or for my family or something, right? And I thought, what does it tell me about this language that it has an actual phrase for the lack of a vision for the future? And that people fire off that phrase with such readiness. So that's... Um, that's the other reference of this, uh, uh, of the title. It actually refers to the idea, uh, to, to the phrase Budushivanyet, but also to this, that sense, which is uh, very important to totalitarian, to the experience of living in totalitarian society, of the slack of ability to visualize the future. What do you think an American reader should be taking away from this book? What do you want them to take away from this book? You know, I think that um, books are good stories. Uh, and what I want is for people to start reading the book and not be able to put it down because it tells such a compelling story. I can vouch for that. Thank you. So, <laughs> uh, so I don't, I mean, that might be a really strange thing to say for somebody who, who writes nonfiction, but I don't think that books are, you know, vessels for a message. Um, it's been an odd experience because I think that a lot of people, a lot of people have told me that they found this book illuminating not just on the subject of Russia but on the subject of, of this country as well. That never went through your mind as you were writing it. I finished writing it in September 2016. Okay. Uh, so, so actually, what went through my mind was that after I finished writing this book, I, I sort of raised my head from the desk and you know, like the last few months of writing a book, that's all you're doing. Uh, and the world doesn't exist, and the summer was the perfect time to be doing that. And then I raised my head from my desk, and I was like, oh my God, I just did a lot of relevant research. <laughs> uh, but no, that's, that's not what I was thinking when I was writing it. The last idea I just wanted to touch on briefly, because I think it's a, such a profound idea, and it, it actually, it's one that you explore throughout the book, but in particular, it comes up in one of your characters, uh, or the grandfather of one of your characters, Alexander Nikolaevich, who was a, one of Gorbachev's deputies, he talks about this idea in his last interview of the leadership principle. And he says, we had our czars, our princes, our secretary generals, our collective farm chairman, and so on. We live in fear of the boss. We are afraid of freedom. We don't know what to do with it. And this, to me, this idea of the fear of freedom just struck me as so profound and, and so fascinating and so alien, I think, maybe to an American audience who feel that our whole life is based around the pursuit of freedom or... Well, that's the mythology, right? But, uh, but you know, I mean, it was amazing to me that Alexander Nikolaevich Yakovlev, who is... Uh, you know, who's a terrific sort of character. He is the grandfather of one of the characters in the book, but he comes up quite a lot. Um, and he was the intellectual architect of Perestroika, and I find him actually to be a lot more interesting than Gorbachev, um, and possibly more important to, to Russian history. 
But it's fascinating. I'm pretty sure he never read Eric Fromm. Uh, but he produces this, this, this concept of uh, we're afraid of freedom. Fromm had a very clear conceptual uh, structure for, for this fear of freedom. He uh, wrote in his book Escape from Freedom, he wrote that there are two kinds of freedom. Freedom from and freedom to. And freedom from is what we all want. We all want to, our parents to stop telling us what to do. And freedom to is the freedom to invent oneself. And that's not so clear-cut. We don't necessarily want it. We don't necessarily want to make choices. We don't necessarily want to live in an unpredictable world. And his idea was that there are certain times in human history when freedom, too, becomes unbearable for a critical number of people. And then that critical number of people wants to hand over their agency to someone who will say, okay, you will now work for me, you will now listen to me, whether that someone is Martin Luther or Adolf Hitler or, you know, somebody more contemporary. Do you think, just to close, do you think that in the U.S. we are becoming more frightened of freedom too and, and what that means and how we define ourselves? I think we are. I think we're absolutely living through a period of freedom to being unbearable. But I also, I want to, uh, you know, I'm sure you know, both of us being journalists, we've been involved in this ongoing discussion about how we don't have enough empathy uh, for the Trump voter. And, um, and I think that that, you know, sometimes that discussion goes, uh, goes sort of in the wrong direction. But I think that, um, that it is really important to acknowledge that there are real reasons why people feel so unstable, right? Uh, and, and the fear is real. Uh, and that, uh, that inability to envision your own future, to invent your future, that sense of absolute powerlessness, you know, that's, that's a really painful thing. It's not because they are ill-informed or they're, they're losers of some sort. It is unbearably painful, uh, you know, to live in post 9-11, America that has proclaimed this forever war. We've been in forever war for 16 years, right? A war, uh, by definition, that doesn't have an end, because how can you win a war on terror? Uh, uh, to live in the wake of the housing crisis, which, uh, which I don't think we ever psychologically processed, right? Um, to live in, 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 in a world where jobs are disappearing. Uh, and then, you know, somebody is Charlton who comes along and says, I'll bring back your jobs does the job because, because the despair is that deep. Masha Gessen, I wish we had time to discuss more because it's so fascinating to, to listen to you, to learn from you, and to read this really, really brilliant book. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you so much. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org.